Hello, ASQ vloggers. My name is Tian Yuhe Tanya. Uh, I'm a doctor student at NCAT. Today, I have the opportunity to sit down with Jean-Pierre Petriglieri and Jennifer Petriglieri and discuss their joint work with Jack Denfield Wood, Fast Tracks and Inner Journeys, Crafting Portable Selves for Contemporary Careers. Uh, GPN Jen, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, so why don't we start by talking a little bit about yourselves and your main research focuses. Thank you for having us, Tanya. A lot of my research goes in and out of around the question of what do we talk about when we talk about leadership? If you look at the contemporary workplace, there is an incredible preoccupation with the idea of having good leaders, having enough leaders, becoming a leader. And you know, a lot of my work looks at um, why are we so interested in it? Why is it so important for people in the workplace? And uh, how do organizations deal with this apparently insatiable appetite for leadership that we have in our day and age. So I'm really at heart an identity scholar and so the questions that fascinate me are around how people construct and hold on to a sense of self in our world today which is very complex and changing and how they do that relationally so not on their own but with others and how they use others and in institutions to really craft this sense of here I am and I have a purpose in my life and I can move forward even if things around me are falling apart. Well if you think of this paper it's actually one in a stream of papers and activities that Jen and I and Jack and other colleagues and friends have been engaged in over the last 10 years to try to unpack one fundamental change that's going on in the workplace which is you know for centuries we tended to anchor ourselves to institutions such as the family the company the nation states and now there's the emergence of this very mobile nomadic class of fortunate workers who move across countries who move across com uh, companies who move across functions and then you know the question becomes where do you put yourself Where's your place? Can there be such thing as a self without a place, or at least a place in the way we've understood it for a long time in the social sciences? That's quite interesting that you mentioned it's part of a series of work that you've been doing. Is it also partially based on some of your observations, your own experiences, or you think it's also informed by some of the theoretical interest that you have uh, over the years? So it's really, I mean, it's really a combination of both. Definitely, definitely. Yeah. So, um, Total labor of love. Total labor of love. But I mean, I want to start with the experiences and observations because all of our research, whether it's this stream or other, is very much phenomenon driven. And I think what struck us really a bit more than a decade ago now is we were in business schools and, you know, the landscape was changing, right? People were coming to business schools for slightly different reasons or at least saying they were from before. And this was knotted up with the changing of institutions, like people weren't wedded to one institution for their whole lives. It was also linked to this identity idea, you know, who am I and how do I construct myself at work? And work was becoming, had a more meaningful place in people's lives. So there was this sense that who I am is really intricately connected to what I do and where I work. And so we saw all these trends coming together and obviously they're rooted in the literature. And it was really those shifts and our observations and experience of, this, of them that sparked the project. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, the, the place in the theory that we could see growing as we, as we moved along. 
And phenomenon driven isn't a bad thing, right? Or sometimes it's people portray it. It's a good <laughs> thing. Especially if the phenomenon is puzzling. Especially if the phenomenon is somehow controversial. I mean, if you look at business schools that are interesting institutions because they've been heavily criticized for the last decade, you know, from outside and from within. And yet, a huge amount of people actually compete fiercely to find a place in um, some of these classrooms and companies want to hire their graduates. So we were, we were at the core of our interest was looking at this institution that is at the same time said to be so troubled and yet remains so attractive and so successful. How's that possible? And the reason why it's possible is because it does a lot more than what it says in the tin. You know, very often if you look at the brochures, it's all about, you know, finding good jobs and if you look at the Financial Times rankings and in salary raises and skills and knowledge and this and that. And then, you know, I think Jack and Jen and I were encountering a lot of people who found themselves in buildings like this doing much more than, um, you know, trying to get a job and or a salary raise or new skills, they were really trying to answer questions that are psychological, existential, social in nature, like who am I, what do I want to do with my life, where do I belong? And so we felt there was very little, you know, in existing research that really looked at the question of what happens while, um, you know, traditional learning seems to be happening. And where are the places that people go to prepare themselves, not just cognitively and technically, but also socially and psychologically for careers which are uh, relatively uncertain and relatively untethered from a single place. And I think that's important because from the research, we were trying to really answer two questions. One is the kind of why question. You know, why are people here? What are the things they're doing? And the other is the how, and this is the process. So the, the model that we build in the paper is really a, a process model and it took us you know a couple of years to collect the data and it was overtime data you know we were trying to put these both of these pieces of the jigsaw puzzle together at the same time it's interesting also that you know we started very driven by this by this observation by this insight by these questions that we really couldn't find an answer for and at the same time the project was incredibly theoretical because we ended up having to conceptualize to find a name for what an institution does beyond providing people um, you know resources and opportunities and so actually before this paper came out the first paper of this stream of work was a paper where uh, Jen and I coined the term identity workspace mm -hmm. to describe an institution which actually allows people uh, more or less deliberately to consolidate their existing identities and transition to a new one. And we felt like we had to conceptualize the social setting that way to then have a lens to look at the experience of the people we were studying and that we ended up writing for Fast Track. And I think one of the things that was exciting and also kind of complicated in that project was really honoring the fact that we were trying to make sense of people's deeply personal journeys at the same time as we were trying to make sense of an institution's shifting place in the social fabric. And, you know, to honor those two levels, the kind of personal and the social level, it was a significant piece of work and we were fortunate that our editor and reviewers were encouraging 
to keep both in mind. You mentioned that it's about how people see themselves and how it interacts with the institutional context. And in this paper, there's a very interesting concept, portable self. It almost feels to me when I read it like you have the self that can travel with you through time and space. Uh, can you elaborate a bit more on this concept for our listeners and why are they especially important in a contemporary careers? If you think about our identity really through the whole of human history, it has been wedded to place right from the dawn of civilization through to really 20, 30 years ago. If you ask someone the question, who are you, right, answer that question, a lot of it was rooted in a, in a sense of physical place, right? Mm -hmm. So a home, a community, an organization, and they would often describe the physicality of the organization. So it was really every aspect of ourselves was linked to quite a permanent rooted thing. Mm -hmm. And we saw that in careers as well, that mm. we know until 20, 30 years ago, you would enter an organization in your early, mid-20s and pretty much expect to be in that same organization all the way through for the vast majority of people. So there was a sense that the organization was a second home as well and a, quite a permanent home, not a temporary home. And, you know, in the last 20, 30 mm. years, that's completely shifted. We've seen a couple of things happening. One is we've seen people more define themselves in terms of their profession or their occupation. You know, I don't work for GE anymore, I'm an engineer, and that may, may go across. So there's this increasing sense of portability, right? If I cannot root my identity in a physical place or a set company, then where do I root it? And you know, what we found in this context, and of course in this context, it's the, if you like, the right end hand of the distribution, people who are in some ways hypermobile, not just across companies, but across national boundaries and everything. This sense of portability was really important because on the one hand, portability is very destabilizing. If we think of it, how we've always conceptualized identity, that it's rooted in a place or a specific institution. And so, you know, these people needed to defend against the anxiety that, well, there's no, you know, I'm, I'm kind of rootless. And the way they did that was internalizing that idea of portability and making that portability an identity in and of itself. So the fact that myself is portable gives me an anchor and I can move that anchor around. It doesn't need to be physically anchored into a specific town, a specific organization. So I think um, it's an empirical question, would you have seen these 30, 40 years ago? Probably not. Mm -hmm. um, but there's a, there's a real connection between that and how society and the world of work is changing. In this paper, portable self is developed in a more work-related context. Do you see that also happening? Like, is it a separate developmental process if we take into account our family life, or does it have to happen related to our work and job or how we see ourselves professionally? Well, when you look at the people we studied, people for whom, as Jen was saying, mobility is the new morality. Mm -hmm where you know being mobile is actually a virtue not a problem then the question of personal and professional becomes less salient i mean many of the people we studied didn't really resonate with the idea of a separate professional and personal self what they actually aspired was to have a self which had personal and professional elements combined so that their work could be 
you know, a way of expressing who they aspire to do and that they could, you know, find opportunities where organizations find them attractive. And, you know, it's interesting because if you look at what they were trying to develop, for example, with each other, wasn't just a network, but it was a community. It wasn't just colleagueship, but it was also friendship. And many of them thought about relationships in other domains in relation to their portability. So if I had a family business that demanded that I go back, or if I had a spouse whom I felt wasn't as mobile, either for practical or for emotional reasons, then they felt those relationships were actually challenging their development of portability. But if I had professional connections or personal connections, or I was part of um, you know, a friendship group that distributed across the world, then those relationships were enhancing their sense of portability. So in many ways, what you know, they were trying to develop wasn't just a set of professional, you know, psychological resources and professional relationships, but it was also a social group that could travel with them as they went along. So that if I didn't, so if I move, I don't have to start from scratch. Mm-hmm. Like I can, I can bring it with me. And certainly that included the personal sphere uh, as well as the professional one. Although I don't think that distinction was so so important for this particular kind of person. So in this paper you talked about there are different pathways to construct um, portable selves. What do you think are the important implications for organizations? It seemed that we're assuming organizations should be conscious of their role in helping people to construct their selves, their portable selves. Do you think organizations these days really realize that? What, What do we hope that organizations can actually take on related responsibilities in this sphere? I think organizations definitely realize that. I mean, more or less consciously. I mean, if you look at most companies this day, they actually fashion themselves after educational institutions. Mm -hmm. So if you go to large corporations, they no longer have headquarters. They have campuses. You know, when people leave, they call them alumni. They don't necessarily promise people loyalty, but they do promise learning. And in many ways, what our paper does is it ends at what does it take to really keep the promise of learning? What does it take for an organization to really deliberately serve as an identity workspace for talent who sees moving not as a failure, but as an opportunity? I I think where organizations slip up is by focusing on one pathway or the other, mm-hmm. as mm-hmm. if one size fits all, which it, it just doesn't, you know, our research shows. Now, re- the research shows that quite clearly. So you can think of organisations that are, are more targeted towards the adaptive pathway, right? Here's a path, we're going to put you on it, there's a kind of set steps of milestones. And there are other organisations that are much more exploratory out there, kind of more mm-hmm. blue sky thinking. I think in our experience, there are fewer organisations that allow people to combine both. And actually, what we found was that in many ways, what made the organization we studied so generative Mm -hmm. as an identity workspace wasn't that there was this alignment that many organizations still cherish, but was actually there was this tension between the instrumental and humanistic side of trying to develop talent. There's an implication is that if you actually try to put all your eggs in one or the other side, you might not be able to provide the, 
terroir, so to speak, where talent can grow. In that tension, which then resulted in all sorts of conflicts and contradictions, but was ultimately was, was the engine of the development of portability, was really at the center of what made the organization work. Although it wasn't always pleasant and uh, and I also think it makes it work for the individuals because even if as an individual you're very aligned with one pathway or the other, there's like a dominant and a recessive piece of it, mm. right? That's your dominant orientation, but there's always a piece of you that has some skin in the game in the other pathway. Even if, if it's only the mirroring, even if it's only the fact that you say, well, they are not like me, so it becomes clearer who I am. Yeah. And so to have an organization just focused on one doesn't only not appeal to a swathe of the talent, it does a disservice to those people who are aligned with that pathway anyway. Because it's as if you need the other to understand yourself better. Mm-hmm. But you point to something very interesting, which is, I mean, if you look at, um, and business schools are just one extreme example of a larger group of organizations that promise to help people learn to become better leaders, to increase their opportunity, their security, their abilities. And very often, the rhetoric is actually focused on mostly one pathway, which is the instrumental pathway. This is what, you know, coming years is going to get you. And within the practice, you then have the exploratory pathway more muted. But what that does is it risks making a large part of the population feel um, a second-class citizen or excluded. So if there's a piece of practical advice that I think comes from that paper, it is not about changing the guard. It's not about saying, oh, we were completely instrumental and now it should be all about growth and humanism and the development of the soul. No, that's not the point. The point is actually having these two as equal streams with all their contradictions. And that makes the organization more appealing, more functional, and ultimately more developmental. I think it is especially due to these tensions that you just mentioned. Do you think there are instances where portable selves are underdeveloped or are not fully developed? What would that happen and how would that influence someone, someone's, let's say, professional life? Uh, we know that not everyone has the opportunity to mm. go through an educational yeah. institution where Definitely. we can see both pathways presented. Mm. What would happen to those people who do not have a, f- let's say, full-fledged portable self yeah. with them? I think it's a great question. So, first of all, I'm not sure every single person in the world needs them. Mm. Oh. I, I mean, if we think about portable cells, mm. they are appropriate, for the want of a better word, for the group of people who are moving around a lot. You know, there are still large swathes of the population, particularly in, um, in blue-collar jobs, who do tend to stick with the one organisation. So if we focus on the population who may need it, then I think there's a kind of psychological and a practical level. You know, what happens psychologically if I don't have it? And this really comes back to our system psychodynamic lens. You know, what we saw really was, in some ways, the development of the portable self is a defense against the anxiety of this hugely complex and uncertain world. And what we could see as people went through the process of developing a portable cells, that they became kind of less anxious and more secure as that portable self became more viable and developed. So on a psychological level, what happens if they're underdeveloped is people's anxiety jacks up because they're really in touch with, well, there's this uncertain world out there and I'm going to move a lot and how am I going to cope? 
and this idea that I'm unanchored and unrooted really comes back. So that's kind of on the you know intrapsychic level, and then then what happens practically out in the world. You know, I, I think a couple of different things it can happen. Sometimes the person doesn't move, okay? So if we think about instances in the data, the few instances of people who didn't fully develop portable cells, sometimes they kind of felt stuck in a place. So maybe it was they had to go back to a certain country, to a certain situation, to a certain organization. And then it was almost more painful to develop a portable cells, which gave them the chance of mobility, but in reality they couldn't move. And then I think, you know, you had the opposite sometimes, that people had developed this portable self, but then for some reason couldn't get that to match Mm -hmm. with the opportunities in the outside world, which also then created some kind of anxiety. So there's something around matching the inner and the outer worlds. And when those are mismatched, that's when the problems arise. I think it's true that not everyone needs one, but I think more people need one than they might think they do because I think you know kind of uncertainty and you know mobility impacts a lot more people than it used to in their workplace and I think the problems arise when you need one but you can't get one then I think you might feel powerless and resentful or when you need one and you don't want one or you actually might not want to arrange your psyche and your life around mobility you might want to arrange them around um, around stability I think in in those situations what happens is uh, as Jen was saying is you can get caught up in a sense that you are not the author of the story that is your life and that tends to be a pretty difficult position for anyone to be in okay now let's uh, go to like the production of this paper so how how did the paper evolve um, during the review process? Um, you alluded to briefly that the editors find this to be a very exciting idea. Uh, was anything over the process that you added into the paper that changed from the very initial design of what you wanted to do? Production production <laughs> makes it sound like it's um, like it's a thing a pie. Um, <laughs> But it, it, see, a paper, especially this paper for us, it's the first project we started working together yeah. on, it's like a live thing. I would use the word conception and then gestation mm-hmm. and then watching it take its first steps. In the, and I think one thing that happened was, um, you know, the editor and the reviewers were like those more experienced friends that make you be a less anxious parent because I think when we wrote the paper it's fair to say that we were we had this idea that this was a more psychodynamic story but we wrote the paper in a much more traditional kind of mainstream way we were pretty cautious and I, I still remember in the first set of review our editor Professor Robin Ely at the Harvard Business School you know she had the intuition I think she wrote you're being perhaps a bit too deferential to what you imagine I and the reviewers want to read but I would encourage you to be more upfront about your theoretical perspective and um, your interpretive voice and I think that really freed us up to look at the richness of the of the setting and the data it also made it uh, of course raise the stake because then it became a more personal kind of assertion it was in many ways a way of saying this is this is who we are this is how we think this is what we 
talk about this, I will write about it. And I think at the end of the review process, one of the reviewers wrote, um, you know, I, I appreciate that this might be one way in which you are not just publishing a project, but you're actually asserting an identity as scholars. And that's true. I also think when, when we, certainly when we started the project, absolutely not now, but when we started the project, there hadn't really been, well, there hadn't been a paper in ASQ using system psychodynamics for 20, 25 years. And, uh, and there had never been a paper in ASQ using the words system psychodynamics. There had been system psychodynamics yeah. papers under different names. Yeah. And so it felt quite risky. I mean, now, of course, in the last year, five have been accepted to ASQ using that, using that language and using those dynamics. So I think, you know, the, the benefit of hindsight, but at the time when we started, it felt that we were taking a big step, not into the unknown, because we knew the theory, but certainly into the unknown of how the reviewer's going to react to this, how was the editor going to react to this. And I think given the career stage we were at then, which, you know, I was a PhD student, we, you know, John Pierre was junior professor you know it's the sort of thing that a lot of people tell you don't do it right it yeah. felt very risky and now having gone through it it was, was right. it was right it was the right thing to do it's the right thing to do because you know in some way uh, see academia is uh, it, it can feel very mechanic and we can use words like production but it's it's really for us it's like it's like an art and if you look at any kind of artist your early work defines you if you don't take risks with your early work you will never take them. And this is where I really kind of return to the gratitude I feel for the editor, for the reviewers. Because, you know, how sometimes, you know, we write to each other in this sort of correspondence, which is um, kind of a mix between, like, love letters and, uh, and lawsuits. And, uh, you know, it's a very peculiar genre because we, we write to each other without using our names. And we try to help each other in the best of days. And I, I feel the editor and the reviewers did more than see the potential of this paper's contribution. No, they, they really imagined our identity as scholars in a way that I don't think we would be sitting here as the scholars we are if those people hadn't pushed us out there in those yeah. moments. And certainly this wouldn't be the paper it is if we hadn't had that dialogue and you'd be surprised I mean I remember we used to write respons the, the response reviewers became quite personal and I think it's important to speak about yeah, this yeah. because we sometimes can look at published papers and, and they become a little sterile we wrote ones out feeling embarrassed about one of the reviewers comments and trying to make sense of the embarrassment about as an expression of our own cautiousness which of course was stifling the theorizing and all that and I also think we were, we were riding a wave because this paper was gestating at the same time as multiple other papers were that we were working on. And I think it wasn't just Robin and the, the reviewers at ASQ, it was also the other editors and reviewers that were working on the other papers. And it felt like there was a cumulative effect with these papers to the point where I remember Robin saying to us one day, it's good that it's taken this paper a long time to gestate because there's a timing aspect as well, that a lot of papers are coming out at the same time and so they're reinforcing each other. In many ways, people will say, oh, this is hard to do, but it, it, it is a moment in time which we're really trying to understand the individual in social context. And there's never been a time at which understanding the role of 
work, understanding the function of organizations, understanding what happens in the economy is so important because uh, business is so central to the social fabric. And so you have to understand it existentially, you have to understand it psychologically, you have to understand it culturally, you have to understand it socially, you have to understand it economically, you have to understand it politically. And so in many ways, a system psychodynamic lens is extremely suited to do that because it's always looking at how the intrapsychic kind of reflects and generates the social and vice versa. And so I think that the times were ripe for looking at, um, you know, working lives in a, in a slightly deeper and broader ways than we traditionally do in the more mechanical studies where, you know, there's a phenomenon and there's an explanation, there's a variable and there's an outcome, which of course not only just give us a relatively narrow piece of the puzzle that is a career, work and life in an organization, but they also sometimes deceive, deceive us to think that things actually work at that level. I think this is quite relevant to PhD students who are beyond qualitative scholars who are looking at a lot of the phenomenon out there that hasn't been studied much. And as you mentioned, you started, started this project when you were a PhD student. How, how would you advise um, students who are interested in very novel phenomenon who really want to engage in qualitative research to approach their ideas and projects. And how, like, how long did this project take? So this project took a long time. So it took about two and a half years to collect the data and probably 10 years in total. Mm-hmm. And it was absolutely worth it. So I think the advice a lot of doctoral students get now is incredibly instrumental. And it makes me very sad to hear it. That you, know, you just have to publish something, anything, so you can get a job on the job market. But, you know, this is about your identity, right? It's about who you are. And I think if you find something you're passionate about, invest and go for broke, because um, this is how we push the field forward. I mean, we know this about qualitative papers. They're, They're more difficult to get in, they take longer. And yet, if you look at what wins the ASQ award every year, if you look at the most cited papers right now on the ASQ website, they're almost all qualitative. So we know that it's, you know, higher risk, but much higher reward. And so I certainly would not encourage people to shy away from that. I think we need more people who are really pushing the boundaries on this and also doing it in a thoughtful way. I mean, you know, we wouldn't have got this paper through or any of our others without a big community supporting us, right? Just, but just like any research, you can't just go off there and do it in a vacuum, you know, but I think if you have that supportive community, then it's incredibly rewarding and you have the chance to make it just a huge impact on the field. And as always, with anything, if it feels risky, then uh, buckle up. Make sure you create the conditions that either make it feel less risky or ideally that actually make, make it become less risky. And that almost always starts with building the connections that allow you to think about how to go about doing a project like this, how do you push it forward, how do you theorize it? How do you get it published? And I think it's also fair to say that, of course, we are now talking about a paper that is, um, you know, certainly the most ambitious that we did within this project, but also we wrote other pieces on the way to that. So there was a stream of work that was appearing that was useful in, in the context of those pressures that we know exist within our profession to have a stream of papers, to find jobs and all those things, because those things do matter at the end of the day 
no one wants to be the starving artist if they <laughs> if they can help it you need to figure out what's going to feed you both economically yeah. and socially and practically but also psychologically it's interesting that for the three of us this was a project of course that we did together and we spent a lot of time on but then we were also doing other work separately mm-hmm. so that we could actually do you know go back and forth between those different streams i think if you were just doing one project and it was a project like this where the data collection is two and a half years long i think you would probably feel um, a lot riskier because it would be a lot riskier mm-hmm. you know it's a beautiful basket but it's still one basket to put all your eggs in and i think that's about the project not about inductive research absolutely because both of us only do inductive research yeah it's it's challenging i think i mean it's fair to say that when you do this kind of work you kind of have five things going at the same time because if you engage in it in the way it ought to be engaged in it's going to absorb you entirely it's a little bit like writing a novel or putting on a play you have to get deep into the field and then you also have to come out of it without leaving the field behind. And, you know, you cannot do it on, in two, three different fields at the same time. And so there's a limited amount of things that you can do. I really like that you mentioned that there's the synergy between all, among all of the projects that you work concurrently. And a last question before we wrap up. I'm a rising third-year PhD student. Mm. When, when was that moment that you found, like, because to create the synergy, you need to know that you, at the core, you love work related to identity research. How did that come to you? So my answer may not be very helpful before the PhD program. Yeah, so I think I'm fairly rare in coming into a PhD program knowing exactly what I wanted to do and leaving thinking the same thing and now being faculty still thinking the same thing. But for me, um, so I can only ask this question personally, it connects to who I am. And, and so there's a sense of the questions that I struggle with individually are reflected in the research. And so, you know, the two align with each other. You know, Carl Jung said, like, all social science is autobiographical. And, and I think that's true. I think some of us disguise it better than others, maybe. You know, for me, it's that sense of, you know, is this project, is it an expression of who I am? And if it's not, I'm not going to do it. And I think I had that sense pretty early on. You know, and I was also older when I started my PhD program, like I had many years under my belt. So it wasn't something, I, I feel like it was something that was looking for me as opposed to I was looking for something, if that makes sense. I mean, I, I would lie if I said if there, there was like a moment where, you know, the, the sort of lightning bolt hit me and said like, I want to study identity or people preoccupation with leadership or organizations. I think the question of home and what is a home and what does it do to you and where are the places where we go to find ourselves has, has been with me for a very long time. And the desire to do work that was personal but also wasn't just about me has been part of my training and growth as a psychiatrist and psychotherapist. You know, that's kind of part of the ethos of that profession where, you know, I have my conceptual roots and the desire to use writing and scholarly writing as a means to address questions I mean there's other ways in which you can find out about the human conditions you know you can write poetry or make film 
or uh, build a company or run for office but this felt you know both the what and the how that was most me and I was um, ridiculously lucky to have the opportunity to do it um, for a living and then uh, for me it was more like you know doing it over time and realizing yes this is this is it this is my home thank you so much uh, it's a very interesting discussion I found it really intriguing and helpful and I I'm sure the listeners will feel the same. And for those listeners who want to take a deeper dive into this paper, it's available online first on the ASQ Journal website. Hope you will come back for our future podcast.